Welcome to Be Advised, Leading with Value with Brad Swinehart. In this podcast, we will focus on successful marketing methods for advisors that generate prospects and clients. We will learn from the best in the industry on how advisors in the trenches today are growing their practices. Join us for this journey where Brad draws from years of expertise and guest experts to help advisors reach their full potential. This podcast is brought to you by White Gloves Podcast Connect Program, a done-for-you, fully integrated podcasting system that will help you keep in touch with all of your leads. There may come a time when you, as an entrepreneur, decide to take your successful business to the next level with a merger or an acquisition. Well, when that happens, you might consider a conversation with Jason Brodsky, a veteran of the M&A space. Jason is managing partner of Strategic Partners Financial Group and a licensed independent advisor. He currently focuses on growth through merger and acquisition. Oh, and hey, Brad, Jason also has a podcast, the Advisor Uh Succession Podcast. Well, that should make this pretty dang easy then. I got a professional. Jason, thanks for being on the show, man. Brad, professional is uh, something I hope you use lightly, but uh, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) I would say it's a very strong word for what I do here is professional. Yeah. (laughs) Well, man, you know, it's a little bit different as we were kind of chatting before the show. It's a little bit different uh, message than what I'm normally talking about. We're usually talking about how advisors can organically grow their business, what marketing tactics to get in front of new people. And I think that this is so timely because in the industry as a whole and advisors just it's it's such a prominent part of the business now probably more than it ever has before and i warmly refer to it as inorganic growth right is going out there and buying the business but i don't know anything about it it's not my level of expertise so thank you so much for being on here what how in the heck did you get started in in doing this Yeah. So uh, again, happy to be here, Brad. So the way I got started was, I guess, a lot like um, a lot of people get started doing something new. I I had an opportunity and didn't know what I didn't know. So I just kind of did in the sense that I started my career uh, working as a captive agent at Prudential. And way back, I say way back, it's funny. No, I don't think I'm getting any older until I look at my kids' parents. And then I realize I'm getting older. So this will date me, but in 2005, I had an opportunity to do an acquisition. And at that point in time, I had only been in the industry about three years and there was an experienced agent that um, was leaving Prudential at that time. And so he approached me about buying his business. And I still remember it, man. I went to Prudential and sort of was like, Hey, so where can I get some resources about where to start? Like, what's this business worth? How do I pay him? How do we do all these things? And it's not, it's certainly not anything against that organization at all. I love my time there, but there just weren't ready accessible resources such as coaching or funding or even broker dealers, which we can get into. But I sort of just figured it out with them and I had no template on which to do it. And so at the time, the output, I still remember how I feel about the output of this whole project, man. So it was stressful. I structured this deal (laughs) where I thought to myself, hey, I'm just going to pay him a little more each year for like four years. And what I remember is by the time I got to about year two, man, I was like, wow, this is a big chunk of money already. And it's only getting worse. Um, but somehow I made it through the lesson I figured out is that 
man, determined um, entrepreneurs are going to find a way to do things. You know, we'll get our hands dirty and work hard when we need to, and they don't go perfect. That was my first experience. And so I just did, for lack of a better word, I would say 90 plus percent of what I did in that first acquisition, I bore to never repeat in the four that we've done in the past five years since. Fortunately, we've been able to stick to that and we learned something, but but yeah, man. So my first acquisition opportunity was uh, long before as prominent as it is now. <laughs> makes me laugh thinking about the the kids and and how you figure out your own age. And it makes me think of this saying I heard that uh, a parent was just saying how sick and tired they are of watching their mother's grandchildren. You know, like <laughs> I just click this bit. I think I'm <laughs> yes. like, man, you know, my mom has to come pick up her grandkids because I am just tired of watching these kids. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that, the, the entrepreneurial spirit, right? And you you often think about that when it comes to marketing, when it comes to spending money on efforts to, to generate new business. And it's almost an afterthought of mergers and acquisitions and, and purchasing a business has to have that same mentality. You're still, you're spending quite a lot of money, like you said, onto a book of business that may or may not materialize into something. And a big part of that has to be maintaining that book, developing new relationships. And how do you make that transition? Let's talk about the relationship side of the business before we get into kind of the, the details of it. You know, when you buy a book of business, you're not guaranteed that any of those clients are going to stay with you, right? So how do you develop that relationship in order to maintain that book of business that you purchased? Many layers to this question. I think I'll unpack them slowly. Um, so the first thing that I think is really a big deal is to have a good understanding with your business partner or the seller about, you know, really what's been the culture of their relationships um, with their clients in the sense that, you know, number one, do they even have one, right? So what I mean by that is a lot of folks say, I call my clients once a year and they call me when they need something. As a buyer, I think the first step in, a successful transition is whether it's the way you do business or not, really taking the time to understand what has worked for this seller. Because sometimes I think buyers get very stubborn when it comes to our industry's merger and acquisition work in the sense that they have a certain way they do things. And, you know, darn it, it's going to be my way or the highway. And the reality is that our team is constantly talking about how crucial it is that if one party on one side or the other of that transaction needs to be flexible, you don't need to be asking the solo practitioner with respect who's done things their way for 30 or 40 years to suddenly start being flexible, right? That's not how they've grown their business. So that's the first thing I would say is um, taking time to understand, do they have a culture? What's the nature of their client meetings? Do they call their clients? Do clients flip out when they're called? There's a handful of advisors I've met where it's like, oh yeah, my clients just call me when they need something. And I'll be like, great. So when do you call them? Oh, I call them after they call me. So that's a bit of a different situation. So I would say that's a very big deal is understanding uh, where they're coming from and how their meetings usually go. Something that we've had good success with as well is creating enough runway in time leading up to the transition point or the closing date so that the selling advisor has an opportunity 
to in mass um, tell his or her clients what's going on and what to expect. So we've done that for a handful of our past partners by using just really short video snippets, which is a great way for a seller to share with their audience or their clients like, hey, so I'm merging. Here's why I'm merging. Here's what you can expect in the next couple months. And here's what I'm really excited about when we have a chance to connect. And here's what that meeting looks like. So our biggest successes have came when we've had partners that were patient enough to allow us to really have a nice runway leading up to that point and really work together and find a communication plan that both fits their personality, but also fits within the scope of kind of how their clients are used to hearing from them. And is that something when you're, you know, when you're evaluating the book of business that you're looking to purchase, is that something that plays a pivotal role of, well, what is this relationship? Is that something you get into with the seller and say, what does this relationship look like? How does, how much of that weighs on your decision of, yes, this is a good fit. I need to move forward. So it matters. It matters a lot. I would say we have had extreme ends of the spectrum. We've had, I can think of one deal in particular where the advisor was very open with us in saying that they did not have a real close relationship, even with their top clients. Uh, That's been the exception. So I think for us, the way it's played into it is really more in terms of what's the value of their practice, right? So let's face it. If you are an advisor and you're saying, Hey, I want to sell my practice. And if you allow a buyer to maybe take a quick audit of a few of your client relationships and just say, Hey, if Brad, if you're the advisor, like, what do you think of Brad? Like, how would you describe Brad in two or three words? Oh, let's not play that game. Let's not do that. Maybe Patrice, because she's so nice, but I don't, I don't trust anybody else. I know there might be a, a, like a midpoint here where you say something. So just like, Keep that one in the back of your mind. Maybe two or three. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Okay. But Brad, I would. But it does play in, man, in all sincerity to the valuation of the business, um, because that's you know not to state the obvious. That's a ton of extra risk that creates uh, more uncertainty around how many clients are even going to be receptive to having a meeting about what to expect from this merger or acquisition. As a buyer, the reason I say that is. Our team has always felt the same way about these things in the sense that, man, uh, as a buyer, if we have an engaged seller and they are open and transparent with us about how their client relationships work and and all that kind of good stuff, I, I fully accept that our team is the same way. The risk that goes along with, hey, maybe we're going to queue up these meetings so we can let clients know what's going on and kind of pass this uh, torch of trust, as I say. And maybe clients aren't going to be on board. And as a buyer, that's our risk. But we do try to identify, are we going to have an issue with clients being unwilling to show up because that's not how the relationship's gone? I will say again, that's been the exception though. The majority of our um, acquisitions and mergers have been with incredible advisors that have a good demonstrated history of, of seeing people on a regular basis. As a buyer, we look at their client relationship management tools so that we can take a look at notes once they are able to uh, legally show us that, obviously. And we get a pretty good idea of the nature of at least their key relationships that way. So 
yeah, to answer your question originally, it plays huge into the valuation piece of what we do. And I would imagine that all ends of the spectrum have positives and negatives to it. You know, you have the advisor that has great client relationships. Well, that's good that his clients are engaged and they're paying attention, but it's also could be bad because, well, now they're sad that now they got to deal with this Jason guy and they don't like Jason. They liked Mark who they've dealt with for 30 years. Right. But then on the flip side, you got the guys that aren't engaged. They call when they call back. Right. And that sort of thing. And maybe that's good because they won't even notice just things go right along. But if there ever is something that you need to get in touch and do that, well, then now you're basically cold calling someone who's your client. That could be strange. So I think it's just, it's interesting to hear how, that relationship plays into this business as we always see that it does. I really want to kind of talk about um, real quickly on, you know, the, the buyer's market, seller's market. Does this industry have that same fluctuation? Like the, you know, all I can think of is the crazy housing market right now where, you know, you buy it, you pay, you know, 50% over asking a sight unseen in cash, you know, when you promise your first three children will, wash that person's car for the rest of their life. You know, like that's how you get a house now is does, <laughs> does this business, does this industry experience such fluctuation or is there, a, is there a buyer's market and a seller's market? Oh man. Well, the good news is that uh, I'm not sure how I, I didn't know how the market was in Detroit until you just shared that Brad, but we don't quite have that level of uh, atmosphere here in Wichita. We haven't got to children yet, but it's almost that <laughs> bad here. Yeah, it is changing. Um, the biggest way it's changing is so I have an advisor who's a good friend of mine who just in the last uh, two weeks actually um, has sold his RIA practice um, and there was incredibly uh, little due diligence that was done on the practice, but he received a lump sum check. It was for about four times annual gross revenue and there was not lead up. He didn't have an internal team that he was transitioning to. There is only one in, one team member that he had that's going to stay on with the buyer, but the landscape has changed uh, tremendously. And so I don't know that's going to um, soften either, unlike the housing market, right? Um, what I see also going on now is little, well, not little things, but big things like funding, right? So when I first started doing these, it was really tough to find, you know, a bank or a lender of some sort. And the vast majority of advisors that want to actually implement plans in this space, man, they're going to need some help for at least the first couple deals on funding. Um, and nowadays, uh, it, it's wonderful. I love it for what it's doing for our industry and for sellers as a whole. But it is so easy for buyers, whether it's working with your broker dealer, registered investment advisor, a lot of those organizations have now started up a funding arm to help their advisors create succession plans, which I think is cool. Uh, there are you know, so many resources as far as larger companies that I think just do great work as far as serving as brokers to help sellers um, find buyers. And so they're creating tons of demand. Uh, it's also easier than ever to create evaluations so that a sole practitioner knows what their business is worth. So yeah, all that stuff points me to say, yes, it is much, I think, more of a seller's market than a buyer's market. 
And unfortunately for buyers, like the housing market, unlike the housing market, I don't think it's getting any better. It's going to continue to be <laughs> a seller's opportunity, man. So yeah, it's changed a lot. So what, what kind of tips or what kind of strategies should someone put in place to get a successful succession plan going? Okay, you've, you've found it, you've got the funding, you've, you understand their book of business now and how they interact with their clients. You know, now what? Okay, we, we ink the deal. Now what do you do to actually get that plan in place and, and see that successful transition? That's the hard part, right? Um, everybody can talk. <laughs> now get to work. You cut a check. Now get to work. Exactly. Uh, that's the tough part, man. So it's easy to talk about doing one in theory. Um, it's difficult to do in practice. So I'm excited to get into some of this. So the first thing I would say is I meet a lot of advisors. I just met one this week. And what the gentleman said to me is I'm interested in potentially being a seller in the near future. But I'm interested mostly in being a buyer right now and what you do with your acquisitions. And so the first thing I would say is that be very intentional about if you're a buyer, once you've inked a deal, be very intentional about what realistically is your capacity to, to output energy into this project, right? So for example, I meet a handful of folks who just choosing numbers here might have their own practice that's $30 million in assets under management. And they are out there looking to buy up a business that is as large or larger than their business. And you're not going to have a problem finding likely a seller to engage in that plan. But man, my question is like, how are you going to do that? Right? Um, a whale doesn't swallow a whale nine times out of 10. So um, that would be the first. Yeah, your staff to do what you're doing. And if you're good, you're working most of the day doing, you know, you're, you've built that to scale to, okay, I'm at, you know, maybe not at capacity, but near capacity, right? Because you run an efficient office. Um, so yeah, to just, okay, we're just going to double our production overnight and sounds great, right? Everybody sounds great. You see all the, you know, oh, 10X in two years, double your production. Like, oh, okay, but are you staffed to do that? Yeah. Absolutely, man. You're exactly right. So the way that we had success doing our first couple is we worked with incredibly flexible uh, sellers in the sense that I was so fortunate to find the two people I did, but I looked for them and we can get to that later if you want to as well. Uh, it wasn't an accident that we found the, the first two sellers that we did. But so I think that not over acquiring in terms of if you haven't had experience with a lot of employees. Maybe it's a bad idea, right? To, to acquire a practice where there's three or four team members that are already going to be a little bit stressed out because of the change that's happening with the seller and you've never managed people and you have to manage, meet all these new clients. That's tough. I, I would say start small, much smaller uh, than you think you need to start if you haven't done a plan before. Work with an advisor that is flexible with how you go about telling the transition story. So we've had a couple advisors um, that we worked with that were very, very specific. And I, com I completely get it, man. I respect it with what story they wanted to have told um, as they brought on these new resources and implemented. I'm glad that we actually saved those until later when we had some experience and we had our own team. The other thing I would say is don't 
uh, for those advisors that have a team that have been doing what our team has been doing previously as well, don't underestimate the power of, again, being flexible and working with the seller's existing team. Uh, even if they have a different culture or they have team members that maybe they don't fit into a specific box, right, with how your org is structured, um, accept the fact that it's so powerful that they are a third-party advocate for you, that man, when those clients call up the advisor, which will happen every single time, and they'll say, hey, are, are you sure that he or she knows what, what the hell they're doing, right? Um, you need somebody that's other than the buyer or the seller to be able to say, you know what? Um, my experience has been great with this team. Um, I'm excited about this. And we're so grateful um, for the team members that kind of stuck with us through the ones that we've done. So uh, that would be kind of my big thing, I think, big couple things. Um, so I hope that helps. It makes total sense because, you know, there's, there's more people in your office that develop a relationship with your clients than just you. Right. So if, you know, the, the, the candy dish in the lobby and there's the, the chit chat there that they get to know their kids and family and friends and they get warmed up, like if you can keep that person around and they're doing glowing endorsements of you, that's so important compared to, hey, I'm really great and he thinks I'm really great. And now I bought his business and now I want your business. Right. If you can just keep that warm touch. And I think to your point, even like if you look at it as an investment, they might not be the perfect fit. You know, they might not be the hardest working or the, the best culture fit for what you want to grow, but you know what, they have the ear of the, the client and that's a, that's an investment to probably keep around. Maybe one last thing um, I'd love to touch on here is just, you know, I've, I've heard you mention it before, but just that win-win nature of working with a younger professional when you go into something like this, how does that work? Yeah. So actually, as I answer that, there's one thing, Brad, I wanted to loop back on that I think is relevant to your last question, if that's okay as well here. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm asking new questions, but yeah, let's go talk about the questions we already answered. No, no, no. I think it's great. Yeah. Happy to do that, Brad. We just run in an ever revolving circle here. Um, no, the other thing too, that I think is really a big deal is making sure that everybody on board with the transaction knows uh, when the seller plans to not be involved in the business. I think that's really a big deal. Uh, most of the time, uh, sellers, it's a delicate topic because they think that they need to be there and they're going to be the lifeline for this business well into the future. And typically what we find is that if we introduce this transition the right way to the clients and there's enough runway, Typically, those advisors um, aren't really counted on for much from the clients after six months, nine months. So I'd be remiss if I didn't mention being really intentional about helping the, the seller know that, hey, it's okay. Like, like, get out of the door, you know, like, like everything's okay. Your clients are fine. Your team's fine. It's okay. Take a breath, which actually is truly a pretty good bridge to your question about how we engage young people. So Here's the cool thing that we completely just stumbled upon that I don't think is unique to us. So as we are helping experienced advisors create exit strategies, my gosh, man, we have an insanely difficult business for a young person to enter. Oh my gosh. I remember when I entered the business for so many reasons, um, it, was, it wasn't easy, but it was easier 
than it is now. Uh, just, I mean, financially making ends meet for a young person to get started. And so one of the things that I give my business partner credit for this, um, he started it, but we do a lot of guest lecturing at universities that are close to us that have personal financial planning programs. And, you know, um, you sort of get what you give, right, as they say. So we, we truly do it because I think it does help our industry move into the future. But, you know, the reality is that there are so many students that are really smart that get an introduction to strategic partners um, before they ever reach a graduation point. We've had internship programs uh, at, our, at our organization for the last, gosh, I think like at least five years. And we didn't know what we were doing with them in the, in the beginning. We just did, right? So um, people always ask me, hey, how do you engage with young folks? Um, guest lecturing and internships are a way to do that. Uh, nothing we do, by the way, is unique. So if any of your listeners just want to know, how do we spend a summer with our, with our interns? We also have a holiday internship that's very structured. Like I'm happy to share any of that stuff. Um, but yeah, so that's how working with young folks got started is it's so cool to have a, um, an opportunity where you've already helped somebody sell their business. And now you've got an existing group of clients with an existing experienced advisor team that's able to help escort a young person into the business through the process of licensing and really let them get started with some confidence. Um, that's probably the thing that I'm most proud of. Um, if you ask me what's the one big thing sort of for us in the past five years that makes me happiest, um, it's, not really, I, I, it's not really the business growth. It's like, for example, between June of this year and mid-January, just in like three weeks, four weeks here, we are going to have four young people that all of whom are every are, are younger and smarter than me, which is not hard to find anymore, but they want to be here. And I love just creating a culture where uh, we have a space for young people to enter our business. Um, uh, that's probably the thing that makes me the proudest man of what, of what we've been able to do for other people. The more successful people I talk to, the ones that are happiest are the ones that aren't focused on the, the wealth and the growth. They're super uber successful, but they're focused on, well, now I can give back. Now I can do this. Now I can do that. And that's where they're pulling their joy, you know, where, yeah, the growth hitting those goals, you know, I'm a sales guy. It's, I mean, that feels great, but it's fleeting, right? You hit that. And then the very next call, the guy tells you no, and then you're right back down to bottom, right? So when you can experience that, that level of growth that allows you to give back. And that's a whole, that's where those people just, you know, like yourself included and some of the other um, highly successful um, entrepreneurs I know, that's when they start feeling really, really good about their lives and what they've, what they've accomplished. It's not the, oh, I built a, you know, $200 million practice. It's, I was able to bring in four interns and give them, you know, help them with this. It's like, well, yeah. I mean, that's just, that's so powerful. So if you had one final thing to kind of wrap up here, what would be the number one thing for an advisor to think about before they decide to either sell their practice or look into buying a practice? I guess we're going to need two answers because those are probably two very different uh, mindsets, right? But if you're going to sell it, 
what should you what should you drop dead? You have to do this. And if you're looking to buy something, okay, I absolutely need to do this first. Yeah. So uh, on the sell side, that's a great question. Um, I'm I'm going to go to a space that uh, I think is a little unique to us. Um, unfortunately, I learned this the hard way by not doing due diligence on it early on. But I think with a seller, um, you need to accept the fact that selling your business is by nature an unselfish act, right? Like we work in this industry where, yes, the best advisors, um, I, I truly feel like, uh, take much better care and provide way more value, right, to their clients than they collect in fees. And that's the way it should be. But the reality is that monetarily for uh, that solo practitioner out there, it's it's a really difficult business to really justify ever selling it um, if you're doing it for yourself. Um, so one of the things that, you know, I would absolutely challenge a seller to think about is, you know, number one, can you be unselfish with 80 to 90% at least of your client relationships uh, and make the sacrifice and, and, buy, and lean into the idea that I'm going to give these folks, again, 80 to 90% at least an opportunity to get access to a team and services that I don't have the energy or the bandwidth to provide anymore. Um, the, the other thing that I think for a seller to think about that I would say before we hop to the buyer side is, so sellers also, I think, have been trained uh, not for good to think about selling their business, man, in terms of I'm going to sell this thing that's been my life's work on Friday, and I'm going to sort of walk off into the sunset, leave all these people that I've had this great relationship with, with this new person and never just come into the office or have any connection starting on Monday. Um, I think sellers need to be more stubborn than that. So one of the thing I would say too, is that if you have, you know, 10% of your client base or even 20% of your client base that you're, that you're not ready to sell, I'm going to tell you, um, I can make a great case as a buyer that it is a win-win to work out an arrangement with a buyer where maybe they take those 80 or 90% off your hands and you work out a fair purchase agreement, but maybe you can retain 10 to 20% and you keep your purpose. And maybe you keep some of those higher leveraged um, you know, relationships because they're closer to you and they've probably become friends. So I would say be selfish, but, but also be, or be unselfish, but also be a little stubborn on the, on the buyer side. Um, and knowing that's a possibility. Um, I'm all for advocating for stubbornness. Cause I, <laughs> I, I am very, I'm a very stubborn person and I don't learn lessons well. So <laughs> I just keep, keep charging for another it. opportunity for Patrice. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll shift gears and talk on the seller. Yeah. On the buyer side, actually on this for a second. So the one thing I would say to a buyer is you're never going to have a perfect plan. Never. Um, I meet so many, so many uh, younger to middle-aged advisors that gosh, man, I feel like they've been dating the idea of like doing an acquisition for an uncomfortable amount of years. And um, when I'm on speaking panels or have a stage, I'll ask people like, what are the top like 20% of reasons that have been responsible for 80% of you not doing this, right? And I hear often 
that, you know, well, this didn't line up or, or I had this thing going on in my life or I couldn't find a great interest rate for funding. Crap, man. You know what? Every single one of the deals we've done, we've had multiple of those things happening and we just deal with it. So I would say as a buyer, commit to it or don't do it, but just know that you've got plenty of resources and things are never going to be perfect um, for you to do it. You just have to do it. I love it. Sometimes it's not going to be perfect. You just jump in and, you know, we've talked about on this podcast before, it's just, it's confidence and clarity. Once you have, this is what I want, you have the confidence that it's going to work and you just green means go and you move forward. So absolutely. I feel the same way. All right. Thanks for being on the show, buddy. We'll have to do this again soon. Brad, I'd love it, man. Thanks for having me. All the best to you. Guys, thanks for a great discussion. Very insightful. That's Jason Brodsky of Strategic Partners Financial Group with Brad Swinehart, your host of Be Advised Leading with Value. Follow the podcast when the latest episode is ready. And of course, share it with colleagues and friends. This podcast is brought to you by White Gloves Podcast Connect Program a done-for-you, fully integrated podcasting system that will help you keep in touch with all of your leads. Thank you for listening to Be Advised, Leading with Value with Brad Swinehart. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of White Glove. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.